First things first, Merry Christmas. Did everybody get a candle on their way in? Just want to make sure everybody's got one. There should be plenty out there for us, uh, but we did run out a couple years ago, so I wanted to make sure everybody did get one. But Merry Christmas. Thank you for joining us this evening. It's a blessing to see you here with us. It's always uh, an incredible joy for me to, uh, to gather with all of you for a time of worship uh, of the Lord and to celebrate the incarnation, the moment in time when the Son of God, who is himself God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, according to the Nicene Creed, who took on flesh and he dwelled with man. Now, if you are like most people, this has been one of the busiest times of the year, if not the busiest time of the year for you. It's so easy to get caught up in all the busy stuff of the season, all the consumerism, or maybe if you're a student, you've been busy uh, taking finals or studying for finals, cramming and, and taking those, those final tests of the semester. Or maybe you've just been caught up in one of the five million things out there that are vying for your attention. And if, if you've been working on redecorating the church, six million. <laughs> but as we get together tonight, as we gather tonight, it is to remember not only what Christmas is about, not only what the Christmas season is all about, but really what all of life is all about. See, you and I were made for more than just getting on this treadmill of life, keeping ourselves busy and running until we just can't run anymore. We were made to worship. Every single one of us was made to worship. And the truth of the matter is that everybody does worship, but not everybody worships rightly. In fact, most do not. But the truth is that we worship whatever it is that we love the most, whether that's football, or money, or even self. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, you're probably aware of a, a group of people who refuse to worship Jesus, and we're going we're gonna to see them in the passage that we're going to look at tonight. If you have your Bible with you, turn to Luke chapter 11. And if you got one of, your, one of the Bibles from out in the foyer, uh, it's on page 870. And there are still Bibles out there if you need to get one. But we're going to be looking at this group of people who were collectively known as the Pharisees, and we're going to be looking at what Jesus, uh, how, how he opposes them, how he is so different than they are. The Pharisees were this group of religious leaders in first century Israel, and while they professed to worship God, they didn't. In fact, most of them didn't know the first thing about God, really. But they knew about the law of God. They knew what the Scriptures said. In fact, they knew it very well. Not only did they, did they know what the law said, but they took great pride in their ability to, by their understanding, uphold it. They, they thought they did, but what they really were upholding was their own understanding based on traditions. Understandings that had been established over the centuries by rabbis. But they missed the heart of the law. They knew what it said, but they didn't understand what it means. Because you can't regulate and you can't quantify many aspects of the law. For example, anybody know what the greatest commandment is? When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment is, he said it was to 
love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. And how accurately can you measure that in yourself? The truth is you can't. In fact, sin prevents you from doing so accurately. And sin prevented the Pharisees from doing so accurately. And if you can't uphold the first and the greatest commandment, it doesn't matter how well you can uphold the rest of the law because upholding the rest of it was supposed to be motivated by the first, by a deep, deep commitment, a deep surrender unto God, an all-encompassing surrender and love to God. And there was a time when the Pharisees saw Jesus casting a demon out of a man who was mute, unable to speak. And the Pharisees saw him do this. This is a miracle, right? This is, this is incredible. They, they understand that it's supernatural. But their response is not to praise God that this had happened, but instead they respond by accusing Jesus of being an agent of Satan. And it's good to note that it wasn't just the Pharisees, though. It's easy to turn those guys into the bad guys and just say, oh, I'm not one of them. Uh, so it's not just them. We need to understand that. My, Matthew uh, isolates the Pharisees in his account of this incident. But Luke's account says this, Now he, Jesus, was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them, who does them refer to? It's the people that are watching this. The people, just in general. The people said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Man, that's a, a steep accusation. And Jesus takes it very, very seriously. He responds to it in Luke chapter 11, verses 17 to 24, basically, in a nutshell, by teaching on the nature of his kingdom, including his authority over and against the dark and demonic forces that he was accused of serving. How foolish it was to think that he had come to work on Satan's behalf when the truth is that he had come to invade and to dismantle Satan's work. And so this discourse ends with, a very powerful parable. Let me read it to you in Luke chapter 11, verses 17 to 24. If you look there with me, Luke chapter 11, 17 to 24, Jesus says this, But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan is also divided against himself, how will this kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons when the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And he says this, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless spaces seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and, puts, and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they all enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. 
So here's the, here's the point of that parable. The point is that if you're trying to live a good, upstanding, moral, wholesome life without faith in Christ or dependence on the grace of God, every attempt that you make to purify yourself and to rid yourself of corruption and uncleanness will actually do nothing but invite an increasingly great calamity into the depths of your soul. There is no neutral ground is what this parable is saying. You must either be for Christ or against Him. If you empty the house out, that is, if you, if you clean some sin out of your life and then leave it empty, that doesn't solve the problem. It only exacerbates the problem. The only solution that ultimately works is to trust in Christ. And a person must be filled with the presence, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Jesus wanted His hearers to understand the same thing that you and I need to understand. And that is that He and He only has the authority to cleanse and to protect the heart. Just like only He had the authority to cast out this demon that was causing this man to be mute. And so this sets the stage for a very important conversation. It's a very important conversation, especially considering Christmas, a time of year when we see all this imagery of, of Mary and nativity scenes and things like that. Because one woman in the crowd who overhears everything that Jesus has just said was apparently so impressed with what she had seen and what she had heard Him teach that she yelled out something that was very interesting. Look at Luke chapter 11, verse 27 with me. It says, As He said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to Him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. Wow. This woman just speaks out. She kind of interrupts Jesus' teaching here. And she appears to be standing against those who had accused Jesus of being an agent of Satan. Apparently, she was so greatly impressed and so deeply moved by what she had witnessed that it turned her mind not to how great Christ is, but to what a great blessing it must have been to be His mother. So she's thinking how wonderful it must have been to be your mother, to have given birth to you, to have raised you. Now we need to understand some really important things about the, the culture in first century Israel. These were people who had an extremely high, perhaps an excessively high value on family relations. In, in most of their minds, their salvation depended really on, on who they were related to. It related primarily on their genealogy. We read about how so many of them considered themselves to be children of Abraham because of their bloodline. And Jesus corrects that thinking, telling them that to be a child of Abraham didn't mean to descend from Abraham, it meant to have the faith that Abraham has, that he had. It had nothing at all to do with genealogy, nothing at all to do with ancestry. And that's a, that's a point that Paul would also drive home in his letters to the, the Romans and to the Galatians. For men in that culture, their, their real value, their greatest value was really found in who their forefathers were. They knew 
who their forefathers were. And that was really, really important to them. It was excessively important to them. And for women, their value was found in the sons to whom they gave birth, which is why women who were barren in that culture were considered cursed. And so in light of this this worldview, this cultural perspective that they had at the time, the mind of this woman in the crowd turns to Mary as she considers how blessed Mary must have been. And what do you think? Is, Is what she said true? It's true. Yes, Mary was blessed. Mary was absolutely and most certainly blessed to have been chosen, the one woman in all of history chosen to be the woman who would give birth to God incarnate. Back in chapter 1, when the angel Gabriel approached Mary to tell her of what was to come, he addressed her as favored one in verse 28. I would say that's a, that's a title that certainly at least implies great blessing. Great, great blessing. And then in verse 42 of chapter 1, Mary's cousin Elizabeth echoes this exact same sentiment. She says, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And Mary doesn't dispute it. Mary, Mary agrees. This is, a, this is a fantastic and an amazing blessing. After, Mary's, uh, after Mary listens to, to what Elizabeth sh- said, she goes into this hymn or uh, kind of a, a psalm of thanksgiving. And in verse 48, she acknowledges, saying, quote, From now on, all generations will call me blessed. So it's true. It's, it's absolutely right that Mary was blessed to give birth to Christ. So we, we should agree with this woman in the crowd to an extent. I mean, what a, what a great honor it must have been to see Jesus day in and day out, to to be a recipient of His love, to be able to hold Him, to be able to to nurture Him, to be able to talk to Him, to be able to, to look into His eyes. Could anyone be more blessed than Mary? And many people to this day would say no. Nobody is more blessed than Mary was. In fact, the Catechism of the Catholic Church says, quote, the Father blessed Mary more than any other created person. End quote. That's straight off the Vatican's website. That is actually what they say. The Father blessed Mary more than any other created person. I mean, surely, if anyone has ever, ever been blessed any blessing that they could possibly receive would pale in comparison to the blessing that Mary had in being Jesus' mother, right? Wrong. Actually, Jesus' answer to this woman in the crowd reveals that Mary's honor in being Jesus' mother, it wasn't her greatest blessing. It wasn't the highest. It wasn't the pinnacle of all blessing. In fact, being Jesus' mother wasn't even her greatest source of blessing. Look at what Jesus says to this woman in the crowd in verse 28. He says, but he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So Jesus doesn't deny that Mary was extremely blessed. 
What he denies is that she had some kind of greater blessing than was or or is available to anyone else. So he doesn't rebuke this woman. He doesn't disagree with this woman. He doesn't contradict what this woman in the crowd said. But he wanted to make sure that this woman understood. And that you and I have a very, very clear understanding that the greatest blessing that Mary had is not the fact that she was Jesus' mother. The greatest blessing that Mary had, according to Jesus, is the fact that she heard and obeyed the Word of God. If there's one time of year when Man, we, we are just bombarded with, with nativity scenes and images of Mary. You know, this is that time of year. And yet we must not make the mistake that this woman in the crowd made and turn our thoughts to Mary. Mary, like you and me, was a sinner. And scriptures are abundantly clear on that. There's, there's really no question about it if our guide is scripture alone. You know, some do revere her far too highly. For example, again, off the Vatican's website, the Catechism of the Catholic Church says, quote, By the grace of God, Mary remained free of every personal sin her whole life long. End quote. Really? Now, that, that is entirely false. And we know that it's false because Jesus himself said, Only God is good. No exceptions. Only. That word only eliminates every person on the face of the earth. Also, we know that Romans chapter 3, verse 23 teaches that all have fallen short of the glory of God. Only. All. These are exclusive terms. All-encompassing terms. That includes you. It includes me. And it includes Mary. But it doesn't include Jesus. Romans chapter 3, in fact, presents Jesus as the solution to this universal problem of all humanity falling short and sinning. So why was Mary blessed? She was blessed for being chosen to give birth to Christ, sure. But she was blessed first and foremost. Her greatest blessing, according to Jesus, was because she heard and obeyed God's Word. And this is seen perhaps most clearly when she was given the news that she was the one who had been chosen to give birth to the promised Christ. And her response was simply, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. In other words, whatever God wants, whatever God has ordered, whatever God has decreed, whatever God demands of me, I will do whatever He wants. So Mary's greatest blessing, according to Jesus, was that although she was a sinner, just as much as anyone else, who needed a Savior just as much as anyone else, she heard and obeyed God. Your greatest blessing, friends, is not in who your family is. It's not in where you were born. Don't think for one moment that the greatest blessing that Mary received is not available to you simply because you have no genealogical or ancestral heritage connected to Him. Why? Because blessed rather are those who hear the Word of God and keep it. 
Think about this. What Jesus is telling us is that the blessedness of being Jesus' mother pales in comparison to the blessing of hearing and heeding His words. James talks about the importance of not just being a hearer, but also being a doer. Because if you just hear it and you don't do anything, there's no point. So I urge you tonight to consider this deeply, and I leave you with this one question. How eager are you personally to hear the words of God in Scripture and to not only hear them, but to obey? There's not a more important question for you to answer because your answer to that question says everything about what's going on in your heart. There are so many different voices that would just pull us in so many different directions. You have the voice of of the ego that's pulling you this way. It's, It's urging you to do whatever makes you feel good, whatever makes you feel happy, whatever you feel like your your inclination is, to do it, to follow it, to follow your heart blindly and wildly. You have the voice of the culture urging you not to be a, a religious bigot who still thinks that the Bible is the all-sufficient, authoritative Word of God. Or urging you to believe that really all you are is a walking bag of cosmic goo that accidentally popped up out of existence just by chance. And then you have the voice of Christ urging you to obey Urging you to hear what He says and to not just be a hearer, but to be a doer. To hear and to heed. He's urging you to love Him and to worship Him above and beyond anyone or anything else. Even when it means denying or acting against the desires and the impulses of the flesh which you have that defy His Word, that defy His commandments. And friends, His Word, His Word, His voice is the only one that matters. And so tonight, let us remember two things. Let us first remember that each of us has sinned. If we hadn't, we wouldn't need a Savior. We wouldn't need God to take on flesh and to be born in a humble estate. As sinners, all we deserve is God's wrath and condemnation. We haven't just defied some lesser authority who's no, really no better than we are. We have defied the sovereign and holy and righteous God of the universe. And the wage of sin is death. The second thing we need to remember is that there are rich, rich blessings to be found in hearing and obeying the Word of God. In His great and immeasurable love, the second person of the Trinity Himself took on flesh, born in a lowly manger, living the perfect, sinless life that we should have lived. A life of perfect, unfailing obedience to the will of the Father. And He died the death that you and I deserve to die as the one and only substitute for sinners who will turn from their sin and believe in Him. He was crucified, buried, and on the third day He rose again, 
He ascended into heaven where He is now seated at the right hand of the Father, but He is coming back. And we don't know when. So the time to obey, the time to make that decision to obey, can't be put off. Because it's not going to get easier tomorrow. Jesus told Nicodemus, and I'll I'll end with this, Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Do you see the parallelism there? There are two statements that are very similar with one word being changed, believe and obey. And so the implication there is that biblical belief Biblical faith obeys. It obeys. True, bona fide faith and obedience are inseparable. They go hand in hand. If a person believes, if they truly believe, they will obey. The good news is, and what we celebrate Christmas because of, is that Christ came to save sinners. That was his purpose, to redeem a people for himself. And that's what we celebrate tonight. We celebrate because nobody else in all of human history can save sinners. Because only Jesus upheld the demands of the law. Only Jesus lived a sinless life, never straying for one nanosecond from the will of the Father. He was fully God and He was fully man and thus He alone is qualified to identify with man but to satisfy the holy and righteous demands of God. And so Jesus does more than just invite us to think, challenge us to think. He does more than just invite us to have some kind of opinion about Him. Rather, He commands us to come to Him and to be greatly blessed for the same reason that Mary and every saint since has been greatly blessed. That is, by hearing and believing and obeying Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for our time together tonight. And we thank you that the greatest gift has already been given in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so we pray, Lord, that you would grow our faith in him. And we pray that you would give us the strength and the conviction and the wisdom to be more than hearers, but to be doers. Give us the strength and the wisdom to hear and to obey in order that Christ would be magnified and glorified in our lives. Thank you again for Christmas. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Take me deeper.